Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to We Gotta Talk. I am Sunny, and this is the place for real talk on big topics. This week's guest is amazing. So if you're a true crime or a, you know, forensic files kind of gal or guy, you're going to love this week's guest. We have on Julie Grant, who is an anchor at Court TV. She worked in television news. She was an assistant district attorney in Allegheny County. Um, She got her JD from the University of Akron. She got her Master of Laws with honors in trial advocacy from Temple University. And most importantly, these days, she weighs in on all sorts of uh, high profile cases that dominate the headlines. So in this episode, we dig through a couple of uh, cases that are, are top of mind right now. Prince Andrew, Alec Baldwin, Bill Cosby, Ethan Crumbly. And we also talk about the mind of a criminal. Um, I know so many people who are obsessed with uh, true crime and true crime podcasts and TV shows. And something I always wondered is, um, is there a sort of like um, a common thread with all of the people that end up convicted or even just charged with that type of crime. So Julie's um, experience um, as a prosecutor really, really sort of informs her opinion on that. We talk about um, some of the craziest cases that she's covered and how some of these big trials have really changed public conversation about certain hot button topics. Um, Oh, we talk about Ghislaine Maxwell too. I forgot to mention that. So enjoy the episode, everybody. You'll hear me introduce her again, but I just wanted to hop on and let you know um, that this is uh, just a really interesting interview. And if there's ever anything that is top of mind um, that we need a legal opinion on. I look forward to bringing Julie back. So enjoy everybody. Julie Grant from Court TV. Here with us to talk true crime. Julie Grant, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. I've loved watching your career just like blossom, like a little background. Like you worked at the TV station I used to work at in Pittsburgh. Yeah, KKA. Yes, you are smart girl, Julie, but you have, as are you, the experience in the courtroom, like you've had a really, really cool career and you've landed at Core TV, which is just amazing. How is it to work? Oh, Sunny, thank you. It is so great. And right back at you, right? But you amaze me. You really do. You do it all. And so um, I've admired your journalism for years. I love your new show. We got to talk. It's fantastic. So I'm a big fan. So it's great to be on the show with you and Court awesome. uh, TV is great. Thanks. It's um, it, it's a lot of fun. I, I feel so blessed because I feel like if there was ever a job for me, I found it. Like thank God, I I, I found it. So I, I really enjoy it every day. It's always something new, and so yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, you. I, I mean, I feel like this is a binge station for a lot of people. I, <laughs> yeah. On which America sure. fascinated Julie with true crime, with any like forensic file thing, anything that is right. real and against the law. I don't know. Yeah, what, right. But oh, yeah. a lot of stories going for you guys for sure on Gore TV. Oh my gosh. Every day. You know, it's so funny, Sunny. When I was a prosecutor in the DA's office, some of the sheriff's deputies in Allegheny County knew a great uncle of mine, my great uncle Art. And he was long deceased when I took the job there as an ADA. But they used to say that your great uncle used to say, you think you've seen it all today? Just come to work tomorrow. (laughs) And it is so true. 
in the world of true crime and in the trials, I mean, some of you just can't make it up. And you're right, it is gripping. We have our viewers who are so great and they're so loyal and they're so super excited to see Core TV relaunched a few years ago. But they'll say like, I have things to do and I can't look away. Like I want to just keep watching and yeah. like, you know, I'm gonna, I gotta go. But I, it's yeah. crazy. And you know, you we watch some of the, the fictionalized shows that are based on some of the cases. I'm sure that you've seen at least similar versions of happening. And like my sister falls asleep to forensic files in you know, 48 hours. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, you probably need to unplug when you get home, right? Like you're not watching that kind of stuff, are you? Yeah. <laughs> No, do you know what? But it's so funny because um, there's nothing wrong with her. Um, that's the good news. And it's just like, I think the criminal mind is so fascinating, right? I mean, it is so fascinating. And some of the stuff, I mean, it, it's stories at the end of the day. I mean, who doesn't love a great story? And sometimes it's just told kind of backwards, right? You know, you know, there was a, a death or a vicious killing. A lot of times they're homicide cases that we're doing. And then you hear the story of how the person was killed and then their life kind of backwards. And a lot of it is through the forensic evidence and everything that the criminalists are able to gather. And um, and then when you see the lawyers tell the story in the courtroom, it's really, really gripping. And um, what I like is like, there's never one case of the same. You always see something new and always a different issue that comes up. And so it's really, really fun to kind of dig in and, and get to watch from afar. Do you feel like, and we're going to get into some cases that have um, sort of stolen the headlines lately. You and I had a call yesterday and there's like so much to talk about. But before we get to that, based on your experience as a prosecutor, right? So you're the one who's trying to get the bad guys. Do you find that there is a profile that a lot of these people who are accused of and convicted of these serious crimes tend to fit? Because I think from the outside, we look and we always say, okay, troubled childhood, issue with parents, issue with uh, cruelty to animals. Like, What have you noticed in your career that tends to be sort of a through line for a lot of the bad guys? That's a great question, Sunny. I think the one that jumps out the most to me, and it's probably because of the volunteer work that I do on my off time, is there is a profile with domestic violence cases and batterers. And I remember when I was a prosecutor in, that was in a big office and we had a whole unit dedicated to domestic violence. And every now and again, I might get a special assignment and the head DDA in charge of that unit, uh, now he's a judge, his name's Judge David Spurgeon, uh, for any of the Pittsburgh watchers you know, who love your podcast, they might know him. Uh, he became a mentor of mine and he just was always someone I looked up to so much. And I was so fascinated. I would talk to him a lot about those cases and they frightened me because I would think to myself, gosh, you know, I handle a lot of gun and drug cases and you see some really bad people, like some really violent people doing things. But this kind of violence scared me a lot more because while they were crimes of violence, they're crimes of secrecy and batterers can very much manage their anger. It's not that they've got an anger management problem. It's that they're using the anger to control. It's really about power and control. And so once I started understanding what domestic violence was all about, and oftentimes, you know, in homicide cases, it it is the result of a, a domestic violence relationship and it, it winds up, you know, with a fatality at the end, you understand there is a pattern, how they use violence to control their victim. And it's, it's not just as easy as, oh, get up and leave because this person is bad for you. Victims and survivors of domestic violence will tell you it's very, very hard to leave because you don't want the relationship to end. You just want the violence to end. And so to me, that's probably been the biggest pattern that's jumped out. And now 
a lot of times it's fascinated me so much. I've done so much research on it and just I volunteer in the uh, movement with the a program called Pause for Empowerment that has, you, you'll love this, Sunny, these canine court advocates that help DV survivors and kids that come to Crisis Center North in Pittsburgh. So even though I'm in Atlanta for court TV, I do it remotely on their advisory board. And you're, it's really easy to spot these kinds of cases now. And sometimes now you're seeing there, there is a link too between animal violence and human violence. And a great example, that case with Ethan Crumbly that's pending right now, you and I were chatting about it yesterday in, in Michigan, the accused Oxford school shooter. There were signs where he was abusing animals and committing these atrocious violent acts toward animals. And that should have been a big red flag um, because sometimes that kind of violence can indicate homicidal tendencies. Yeah. I mean, how many times we've seen on documentaries that a person who ends up being a serial killer would start that type of sort of desensitized behavior from a young age. I mean, is there a way, right. this is a big question, so feel free to just whiff on this one because I'm asking you to be kind of like a psychologist plus an attorney <laughs> for a second here. But, I mean, is, is it always the case that the person who is convicted of the crime is truly, for lack of a better term, that bad of a guy? Is there is there redemption? Have you seen cases where people who have had a history or even one incidence of extreme violence have been able to prove in some way that uh, redemption for lack of a better term is possible or that character redemption is possible or are people who have been bad guys once like Justin, do you think to be that forever? That's a great question. I feel like you could have like a really great legal seminar on that really. And, and I'm certainly no psychology expert, but I, I would say just speaking from experience, most of the people that, this is again, my experience and what I walked away from the prosecutor's office feeling like, most of the people you encounter are good people who've just done bad things. The great majority are good people who've just made mistakes. And so anytime I had a chance to try to help somebody get their life back on track, whether it was like through a theft case or something, you know, something where they weren't going to be a risk to the public, obviously, any, any way you could avoid them having a felony conviction so they could go and get a good job after the court case is over. You do that. A lot of times people just have problems with substance abuse or they have mental health difficulties and just need help. Good people. And then you have that small fraction of the people like the other, you know, maybe 90% are good, just make mistakes. 10% are really bad. And you have people that um, are, you know, engaging in heinous crimes, people who, you know, are predators, you know, child predators, um, have homicidal tendencies or serial killers. Those are the people we really have to worry about. And there's no hope for redemption for them. Um, so I, I think just kind of, it's case by case, obviously. I'm one of those people that I hate to ever paint with broad brush strokes, right? And right, I hate when right. people say, all these cases are alike. And I said, no, they're not. No two cases are the same. Um, but I like to think most people are good, Sunny. Oh, I could talk to you for days. Okay, so <laughs> let's let's use this example, this this um, sort of theme of of most people are good that make bad decisions and there's a small fraction of people who are genuinely bad. Let's pick and choose from some recent cases that you guys have covered on court TV and give us an example of maybe, and we don't have to necessarily use this as a reflection of your own personal beliefs, but cases where it really was just a bad guy. You brought up Ethan Crumbly. Give us a quick um, synopsis of that case. And does this fall into the category based on what you've seen of his behavior that, okay, this guy is beyond redemption. Let's, let's take that as an example. 
Yeah, he's a tough one, Sonny, because what we learned recently about him is that he's going to try to raise an insanity defense. Remind and us I, of what he did to Jewel so we can bring course. it to speed. Yeah, of course. Back last year on, I believe it was November 30th, it was the end of November, he was accused of shooting and killing four of his classmates uh, in Michigan at a high school. He's 15 years old. Prosecutors have charged him as an adult. There were big red flags. I mean, huge red flags that went up with this kid that were ignored. So there are going to be a lot of people in a lot of trouble. Um, I think the school is looking at civil liability. His parents are now criminally charged, which is really on the run. They they actually because there was some issue with them potentially having provided or having provided that gun to him. Right. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. And they were saying they weren't hiding out, but they were like in some warehouse somewhere. No, 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 no. And the judge saw right through that slate risk. They have a, both have a really high bond. They each have a half a million dollar bond. They're not going anywhere. But so, you know, and here's an example. So the crumbly is from what we know, good people, good people. And um, they're going about their business and their son, they recognized was weird. You know, I'm using their words, mom's words, weird, antisocial. Um, And they're trying to get him interested in things and they buy him a gun. And it's fine if you want to go supervise your child on a shooting range, teach a child how to properly handle a firearm, you know, but that firearm should have been locked up and that child should not have had access to it because under the law, he wasn't allowed to touch that unless he was being supervised by his parents at some place like a controlled setting, like a shooting range or something. So he's the day before he's searching for ammunition on his phone and then the day of, he's writing these really sinister drawings. Uh, they, they are so upsetting. And we've, if any of your listeners or viewers, Sunny, want to look at them, we've got a lot of coverage on this on CoreTV.com. And you can see them. We've done segments on them. But it, it was essentially kind of like a roadmap for this killing where he's drawing what's going to happen, the shooting and the blood everywhere. And he's writing crazy things. And the school notices it. They know this has happened. They take him to the office. And at that point, his mom's called to the school. And you would think somebody would say, oh, my gosh, let's search this kid and make sure he doesn't have a gun. Right. Nobody searches him. Nobody looks in his backpack. And then a couple hours later, this massacre takes place. And it is so heartbreaking for those parents whose children should have been protected. And those crumbly parents, the prosecutors arguing, enabled him to do this because they had warning signs the day before you know, several months before with all the animal abuse. And then they know he needs to get help. The school said, get him help. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically went home, didn't check to see if that gun um, was still there, but they didn't lock it up. So they knew it wasn't going to be there. It's, it's, it's horrible. And so right now, I think you have people who made a very, very bad um, series of decisions, Mm -hmm. not saying they're bad people, but just very, very bad decisions. I feel like what what stood out to me as just a consumer, a news consumer of this case was exactly what you mentioned about the potential for the parents to be charged and the potential for the school to face some kind of, you said, civil action too. You know, I'm, I'm listening to that and knowing how much schools have to deal with on a daily basis to manage every individual student. I would be, as an administrator, terrified to have that precedent set, but I would also be even more devastated as a parent of a child who experienced violence that the school didn't do anything. It's a weird situation though. Right. What do you think? Can you actually hold a school responsible in any way for the behavior of the student? Ask any teacher. My dad was a teacher for 30 years and he will tell you, I can talk until I'm blue in the face, but Sonny, they go home 
to their family. They go home every night. So what do you think? Is that actually going to come to fruition in some way where the school may be held responsible? Right. That's a, that's a really great um, question and great points you made, uh, Sunny. I, I agree. I mean, I think teachers have such a hard job to do. So I have the world of respect for teachers, school administrators. It is hard to do. I have friends who are teachers. Um, my mom and dad were both teachers at one point. You know, so I, I get it. And thank thank God for people like, you know, your dad and, and others who are in the profession. Um, at the end of the day, the actor is the most responsible. And so that's number one. But number two, I think if they're in a position to identify red flags, that there is danger ahead, there, there has to be accountability. And here, I, I don't know why they didn't send that child packing the moment they saw that crazy looking series of drawings with the bullets and the blood and the guns and the, you know all this. And they thought, oh, my gosh, here's the kid who was just searching ammunition the day before. Um, I don't know what is going on. I don't know if, if it was you know, wanting to be inclusive or, oh, he's, he's just having problems. It's attributed to him being a bit antisocial. Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, I wish, how I wish we could do so many things differently to protect our kids oh, in schools. Yeah, and, and one of them probably would be if you do something, anything like this, give any sign whatsoever that you might be a threat to your classmates, you're out, you are expelled yeah. and you're your parents' problem. Yeah. I mean, that's true. It's just, you hate to think of a future where you need to have that conversation or that consideration, but I think it's probably a wake up call to a lot of people in charge of school districts to figure out what their plan is going to be. I mean, this is probably something that for a while they never thought they would have to consider, but unfortunately with these incidents continuing, it seems like this should be a wake up call to have a policy in place if you see a troubled student. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Legally. Right. And so, um, yeah. Let's talk about the Prince Andrew case. You and I chatted about sure. the phone yesterday. So as of yesterday, so two days by the time people hear this taping, um, he is going, it, it, tell, tell us the latest of what sure. he's doing and whether or not you think he, he essentially settled the lawsuit with Virginia Jufre. Right. Was that a mistake? on her part or did she have no other choice? I'm kind of confused because I felt like this was going to go all the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people were hoping it would because people I think want juicy details and want to know what is it that really happened. Couple really important things to think about. And I was stressing this on my show today is that number one, most civil cases settle. Most civil cases in America do not go to trial. The system would totally collapse. And same goes for criminal cases, even though that's what we typically show every day on court TV. Most of them are settling in the way of plea agreements, and we want that, and in civil settlement agreements. Also, most civil settlement agreements do not contain contain any kind of admission of liability, right? Hmm. So for people who have been wanting, oh, we want the prince to admit fault if, if he did these heinous things she says he did, not going to happen. And this is nothing specific to Prince Andrew. This is just typical. So it's really an interesting case, Sunny, because what she alleged is that back when she was 16 years old, she, we know, had worked for Jeffrey Epstein giving massages. And she claims that he was trafficking her to other very powerful men and that Ghislaine Maxwell was also part of the trafficking and part of this sick ring that was going on. She claims that way back in somewhere in the year 2000s, she was at Jeffrey Epstein's mansion on the Upper East Side in New York, and that she and another victim, she claims, were forced by Ghislaine Maxwell to sit on Prince Andrew's lap, and that he forced her to engage in sexual acts, and that he forcibly touched her 
against her will. And she alleges that all three people, Prince Andrew, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Jeffrey Epstein, all kind of threatened her with the same, that this was coercive behavior and it wasn't, you know, voluntarily uh, done. Um, so that, that being said, those were just the allegations. And we know that the next step for Prince Andrew in this suit, if he were to let it go forward, would be to give a deposition and would have to, you know, come to the United States, swear under oath, probably be videotaped, answer questions. Um, for him, the juice is not worth the squeeze. Even if he didn't do what she claims he did, and we know he's presumed innocent. He's cloaked in the presumption of innocence right now. Um, this is not an admission of guilt by any stretch. This is this is civil. Um, it, it's smart for him to want to settle. For her, it's also smart too, because nothing's a surefire thing. We know she's getting some kind of settlement. We don't know how big it is, mm -hmm. but we know he's making a big donation to her charity. Right. And she's also someone that many argue has credibility issues. Right. And one of the biggest people who's come out and spoken out against her very adamantly and very strongly is Professor Alan Dershowitz, who was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. And he claims well, of that she's going to speak out against her, right? I mean, we know what side he's on. Well, he was accused by her, right? Right. You right. know, yeah. And so, and he not only denied the allegations, but he countersued her. Yeah. I mean, he sued Netflix for what she put right. forth in that documentary. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it was funny. So he, I didn't expect this, but um, quick aside, you know, for your show, he was on my show one day and we were talking about something totally unrelated. And somehow the conversation kind of went in this direction and he brought up Virginia Giuffray and was saying that she fabricated what was in the lawsuit. And he said, I have an alibi for when she's accusing me of doing this. Do you know what my alibi is? And you know, I'm like, no, what? And he said, I was on court TV. And this was way back with the original court TV in New York. And he was on the air at the time wow. she was claiming. So um, she wasn't called as a witness in Ghislaine Maxwell's case. And some like Alan Dershowitz and others watching closely wondered if that was because of issues of perjury in the past, lying under oath, and that she might not have been perceived as credible. So right. it's probably sensible for her too to settle. You know, I respect the judicial system and I do um, love that we uphold the cloak of innocence. You, like you said, the presumption of innocence, the fact that we give people their due process. But what, I, what I'm hearing as, as you're speaking about this is what I'm feeling, I guess I should say, is just the, a deep, deep sadness that it takes so much for a woman to be believed that we were waiting as when say we as women or anyone who's experienced any form of abuse, whether it's abuse of power or sexual abuse or emotional abuse. I think people wait for a moment when there's a representative of that evil held accountable. And I think a lot of people were hoping, oh gosh, this might be the time, right? We're talking about right. one of the highest ranking men in the world. And I'm not saying he's not innocent or that he's guilty, but I mean, what's disappointing for me, and again, I guess this is this seems a little biased, but I guess it is a little bit. Um, I was really, like many people, looking for accountability. So let's say it wasn't necessarily Prince Andrew who's guilty of those things. There was some network in place and there were some levels of power and access being upheld in a bad way to abuse girls. And I'm all of us are over here like, wait, can we get something to prove how evil this whole circle was and right. nothing is coming through, Julie. And this yes. is where I feel like the system fails. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I love all the points you're making. I love it. And I think what you're doing right now, I mean, with me right here, this this is one way 
um, to try to break through a lot of what has been squashed and mm -hmm. um, dismissed and, and all of that. We're in a different era now, thank God, where women and, and any accuser, whether it's a woman or a man, you know, ought to be believed, right? These great movements like Me Too, Time's Up, have really encouraged women and anyone, women, men, whomever has been wronged, survivors mm -hmm. of abuse in any form, to stand up, speak out, and feel empowered. And what I could, I mean, talk for days on, maybe one day, like I will give a talk or I don't know, write something on this, is we need to have, we need to have a, a, a society where we listen to victims and victims feel that they're able to come forward and feel that somebody will take their claims seriously. But we also still can't have that vitiate the presumption of innocence. So the two, they're not mutually exclusive. They, they right. should go together. They can go together. And so uh, because we know not everyone who makes an accusation is being truthful. Lives can be ruined. I mean, I've seen it yeah. happen with yeah, young kids true. when their accusations made. And so and believe me, I'm a big proponent of victims' rights. I mean, I believe me, like my heart breaks for victims when I was a prosecutor. I'd cry with many of them. I mean, like this, I'm somebody who wants to see victims get their justice. And I'm also somebody who you know, believes in the Constitution and how firmly right. we need to not just cancel someone and, yeah. you know, um, make sure that, you know, their life is ruined because somebody makes an accusation. We have to make sure that that it is true and that what's happening is just. I'm writing that down because I'm keeping that fight. Hold on one second. That that is. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I got. I love that. No, it's it's um it's true. I'm married to a lawyer. He's not a litigator, but yes. who has learned the Constitution, learned the, awesome. you know everything, and and knows the importance of exactly what you're mentioning. And it's such um it's such a battle of I'm sure as a as an attorney, a practicing attorney, it was a battle for you to fight the instinct to protect. Someone who might instinctively believe is telling the truth um, and then watch the other person get off of a charge because of the technicality or because there wasn't enough evidence when you know that it really did happen. I mean, like, did right. you fight that too, knowing that you were trying to put away the bad guys, so to speak, and there was not a way to win every case? Was that an emotional thing for you? Sure. Uh, that's a tough one because a lot of times you know what happened. You just may not be able to prove it. Yeah. Um, so it, it is really tough. Um, and especially when you know someone was wronged and, you know, and you know, somebody's up there lying on the stand. I'm mean, nothing is more upsetting, you know, or was more upsetting to me, you know, when I was a prosecutor and to see a defendant or a witness, you know, lying their face off under oath and not taking the system seriously. And and that's when I mean, they would see a whole nother side of me. I mean, you know, it, it's just um, yeah, we I mean, unfortunately, you know, People lie. People lie in civil lawsuits. People can lie in criminal cases. It, it's really tough. And, um, you know, and sometimes people are not believed, you know, sometimes. Um, so it's nothing is perfect, right? Every case is different. And, you know, to your point with the Epstein case and Ghislaine Maxwell, I think you're absolutely right that there's a lot there that's not being tapped into. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was watching Ghislaine's case play out and we were covering it on court TV, although we couldn't have our cameras in because it was federal court and they're not allowed in federal court. It's, I kept thinking like, when are they going to ask her to talk? Because she clearly has a lot of information that could maybe have a lot of other people yes. in the same she seat she's in right now, you know, on at the defense table. And I'm thinking, so what's going on here? Do we not want to hear it? Like, are, are we, it just, 
it just stinks to me. I think there's a real odor with that whole case. And I wanted to go back to your point, you know, because you're absolutely right for people who feel like, oh, this is really ungratifying. You know, okay, so she she had this trial, but we didn't really learn anything else in the trial. Um, no. and we thought maybe with Virginia Dufre, we might learn something. Um, it's like it's like we were denied the the big ending. We were yeah. denied the conclusion or the. It's just like you feel like yeah. you were stifled in a way. And right. it was interesting too. Again, just from the news consumer side of things, how little coverage the Maxwell case got. And mainstream yeah. media. I mean, it's mm -hmm. one thing for you guys to cover because that is what Core TV does. You know, it's your job to cover these big cases. But like, where's the outrage? Like, I don't understand why people aren't more concerned about this. Like, what right. has to happen beyond children getting exploited? What could be worse? Preach, my friend. Preach. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. There's it's nothing worse. You know, you're so right. And and it is. It's really, really messed up. And I think, I think if if some of what had surfaced way back when with Epstein, like was surfacing now, if he were still alive, it's a whole new day. Nobody's off limits. I mean, we're seeing some of the country's most powerful people, some of the world's most powerful people with Prince Andrew, you know, I mean, coming on the hot seat, coming under fire, um, being either charged criminally, sued civilly, it's a different day. But right. I think once upon a time, a lot of people were scared to go up against money and power and, yeah. A great example um, to me is with, with Bill Cosby, how under one regime years and years ago, he was told, oh, there just isn't enough for us to move forward. We're not going to prosecute you. Sonny, I'm telling you, there was no new evidence that came to light when he was prosecuted. It was just a new DA was in the office and the new DA said, uh-uh, this isn't going to fly here. He's a predator. We're going after him. And that's what they did. And um, sadly, that's in limbo right now, too. Well, yeah, I mean, he, we were talking yesterday. You said he was convicted and then the conviction was overturned. What, what right. does that mean? Like, he's not going to face any immediate sentencing yeah. or punishing. Exactly. He's a free man right now, walking around like he didn't do anything. And I, don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. I, I want to doubt the criminal, the criminal <laughs> system when I hear, like, this is not, oh, it's not encouraging. I no. mean, yeah. and, um, I so want to. I want to think we're in a better place, but then I hear things like that where there's a, a proliferation of evidence and it's like, hey, right. well, better luck next time. Right. So with this one, so it's tricky. He got off basically on a procedural technicality kind of thing. It wasn't because there was a lack of evidence. So, I mean, he, I, there is not a shred of doubt in my mind. And I watched his first trial. I was in the courtroom for it, watched it all. Wow. Um, he he did what they said he did. Absolutely. The state was able to prove it. No problems there. What they ran into on appeal that was a problem was the prior DA gave an announcement in the press that he wouldn't prosecute Bill Cosby. And Bill Cosby relied on that promise in the press, in the form of a press release, gave a deposition in a civil case where he was being sued by the same woman. And he admitted to procuring quaaludes from his doctor to give to woman to take advantage of them. And in the criminal case, years and years and years later, prosecutors used his deposition testimony against him. Mm -hmm. So um, right now, what becomes an interesting legal issue, and um, you may love this. I mean, you're so smart. I know you love these cases and things. One day, take a look at the opinions the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania wrote on this, because all the justices were split, even though the majority decided his conviction should be vacated. 
And now the DA's office in Montgomery County, PA, is trying to get the Supreme Court of the United States to hear this case. They're trying to get it heard to reverse what the PA Supreme Court did. Not all the justices in Pennsylvania agreed. And there were some justices who filed a concurring and dissenting opinion. And essentially what they said is, wait, wait, wait. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We agree his rights were violated, but the remedy is not get rid of the conviction. The remedy is give him a new trial. Just don't use his depot testimony against him. And I agree with those justices for what it's worth. As somebody who watched this case really closely, has dug into it, knows the law in Pennsylvania. I mean, they didn't even need that depot testimony to convict him, Sonny. That's kind of the saddest thing. Like they had the case without that. And it's a shame that that became an issue. And this promise not to prosecute that was in the media wasn't done right. It wasn't a formal immunity agreement. Uh, that sort of was something that the PA Supreme Court majority opinion said, look, that's a due process violation right there. So we'll see if SCOTUS takes it. I'll keep you posted. You could go all the way to the top, huh? Yeah, no, it really could. All we need is four justices to agree to hear it. Who would think that would be his legacy? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when he dies, that will be the last big thing having happened to him. Not like another right. great hit show or an influence in the entertainment world. It will be that. It's Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Yeah. I mean, like there were like around 60 women at the time of his trial accusing him. And there was only one victim on the case uh, because of statute of limitations issues and all, mm-hmm. all sorts of things. And so to your point earlier, like sometimes you see other people who've been victimized living vicariously through someone else's case. Yeah. And yes, so when our county justice verdict was so monumental yes. to people. Like that at least there it seemed that justice was served. Yep. And, and we had a little news about that today, study. Oh God, now, now he's using Bill Cosby's lawyer. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like Cosby has a good lawyer too. So does that mean things can that over can that conviction be overturned or can they appeal and and do you ever see a situation where there's so much evidence stacked against the person they're convicted, they appeal and there's any um, like remediation of the sentence or like, does that ever happen? Any hope? You know, it all dep- it's a great question. Ten Not that I want to, you know, walk free again, but I'm just curious no, if they right. actually overturning any of that. With R. Kelly, I highly doubt it. And you know why? Because he's got other legal cases still pending. Right. I mean, at the last time we counted, I believe there were two federal, two state, and the one federal one went first in New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got so many other problems yeah. Yeah. I just, there, there would have to be some kind of viable issue for appeal. But from what I recall, we were there. I mean, we had our team there, even though it was federal, that was the first one to go. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember anything jumping out like, oh my gosh, this is something that's going to come back. Right. Let's quickly talk about the Alec Baldwin case before we wrap up here. This is sure. another um, wrongful death lawsuit that was just filed on behalf of the victim's family just to bring everyone up to speed. He was on set using a gun, what they believed was a prop gun. It turned out it had live ammunition. He shot and killed the, was it assistant director or director, I think? The cinematographer, right. Photographer, right. Mm -hmm. So the last we heard of him, they were trying to obtain his cell phone. um, And they finally got their hands on that. But he resisted turning that over for quite some time. Does that indicate any level? what, What is that in lawyer speak? Is that someone, oh my gosh, I'm guilty. Let me not turn this in. Or is that, let me just wait a little bit, talk to my lawyer, and then follow the rules. <laughs> you know, I think it says, I'm really nervous that I'm going to be uncooperative as long as I can talk to my lawyers and see what mm-hmm. to do. 
So he did have a valid concern that communications, you know, with his wife, for instance, would be protected right under spousal privilege. And so you could see where something like that. But otherwise, yeah, when you have a court order, you got to turn it over. And no one cares about your sexting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that seems like a little bit of a, a cover to me. Like, I'm just worried about my right. privacy. Like, we're good. Your wife puts everything on Instagram. We already know what's happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, I know we can't really uh, wade too deeply into this until it proceeds a little further. But in the in a wrongful death case, something that the charges that he'll be facing. Is there any jail time ever associated with a conviction in that? Or how hard is it to get it? Or difficult is it to get a conviction? Or the, is it a civil thing? Is it a criminal thing? Like explain to everybody the basics. Sure. Sure. So run, wrongful death, this is civil. So right now he just has something pending against him in civil court. Okay. So um, it's being filed by Helena Hutchins, who was a cinematographer who was killed. Her husband mm -hmm. um, is filing this on, you know, his behalf and they had a child together the child's behalf and so um they're making allegations uh, i mean that I, she should not have have died you know if it weren't for you know his actions which were so reckless in the way that he shot and killed her on that set the criminal investigation is still open so he could be facing criminal liability as well okay if he does it would look something like an involuntary manslaughter charge we know he wasn't trying to commit a murder. We know this wasn't premeditated. He didn't intend for this to happen. We know he was devastated by this. But the standard would be one of negligence in would a reasonable person have done the same? Like, was this so um, reckless and lacking caution? You know, the way he would point that gun, have his you know thumb on the hammer, release the hammer, you know, it would be a question of would a reasonable person in his position have done the right. same? So I think that's a real possibility that he could be facing this charge because of just even basic firearm safety rules. Anybody who's a responsible gun owner knows you never point at anything you don't intend to shoot. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You treat every gun as if it's loaded. Yeah. Um, and the allegation here, the civil suit's pretty stunning. It basically says he he received it from the assistant director, who is also being sued, by the way. He should have never handled the gun. It should have been what's called an armorer on the set who handles the firearms. It shouldn't have been loaded. It was loaded. That scene wasn't even calling for the gun to be fired. It was just calling for it to be filmed. So, I mean, there's a whole host of issues here. He was about four feet away, they say, when he pointed at Helena Hutchins and did like a cross draw. He was drawing across his body from where it was holstered. And um, in those interviews that he gave, which I, I thought was really foolish, he talks about how he wasn't pulling the trigger, but the hammer was back. And that can still cause the projectile to expel from the, the gun. And it, for folks who know what a revolver looks like in the cylinder, I mean, you can see when it's loaded, if you're, you're looking at it um, closely. And the allegation in, in the civil suit is that Nobody was was looking that he just took the gun and immediately started uh, putting it into motion. So this I, does not look good for him. I feel for him. I truly do. And, you know, it's a, just an extremely unfortunate situation in every yeah. way. And now, I mean, yeah, I mean. It's right. awful. I mean, you know, he didn't mean to do it, obviously. Yeah. I mean, to live with that the rest of your life. I yeah. Mean, yeah, it's 
it's just awful. Not as bad as losing someone like her husband and child did, but yeah. very, I'm sure very uniquely painful in its own way. So maybe um, I can call you back if that. Of course, anytime. back. I think that's just fascinating. In anytime. Um, Julie, tell us uh, more about how we can watch you. What's coming up next? That's exciting sure. in your life, and where sure. we can find you on social media too. Sure. So um, Court TV, I promise you, if you just look, you can find us. I'll hear people say, oh, I don't know if I have it on my cable, um, because right now we're in about half of the country on cable, the way I understand it. Um, but we are everywhere else, over the air, over the top. If you have Roku, uh, Amazon, Amazon Fire, um, Apple TV, Pluto, oh my gosh, CourtTV.com. You can stream everything for free, the Court TV app. Um, goodness gracious. On usually tell us. Me, so I'm on from noon until 3 p.m. Eastern time. Okay. So we're headquartered in the East. Yeah. So I'm the midday host and uh, you can find me on social media, either at, at Julie Court TV or at Julie Grant ESQ. Um, so just launching a, a website, Julie Grant ESQ. And um, that's my Instagram. My other handles are or Court TV. Um, but yeah, please um, check it out. You can on demand us if you're in the mood for a binge. We have all the old trials. Um, oh, yes. you know, this sunny, but yeah, like on our website and on if you watch on Roku or wherever um, on your cable, you can we have an on demand section. So you could go way back to the old Court TV library if you want. And you okay. can see all those old famous cases. Okay. Yeah, we've got them all. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know so many people are addicted to your program. <laughs> With good reason, thanks. with the intelligent analysis that you bring to the table. I think Aww, people are thank just you. constantly watching. Julie, thank you so much for spending a little time with me today. I'm so, so grateful. Of course. Thanks for having me, Sunny. Congrats on the show, and we'll thanks. talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of We Gotta Talk. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and follow along on Instagram at Sunny Abata, S-O-N-N-I. A-B-A-T-T-A. -T -T -A. All of the latest blog posts are at wegotatalk.com slash blog. <laughs>